Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Today on the show, we have Dr. Scott Kolbaba, who has been a physician in Wheaton, Illinois, for over 35 years. He and 26 other courageous physicians came together to write a -a one-of-a-kind book called Physicians Untold Stories. It includes near-death experiences, inspired visions, dreams, unexplained miraculous healing, and more. These stories are all true and cannot be explained by current-day medical school training. And I can personally attest, as I hold his book in my hand right now, that this is a great book. Each story is only a few pages, and even the toughest skeptic is bound to believe that there are things beyond this physical world. Dr. Kolbaba's website is physiciansuntoldstories.com. So, Dr. Scott Kolbaba, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Thanks, Sandra. It's great to be here. Oh, great to have you. Uh, Another great episode, I'm sure. I feel like a little kid on Christmas morning. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I feel very honored um, that I get to speak with you today. It's fun. It's fun to tell the stories. Yeah, where does it all start? I mean, you've been a physician for a long time. What kind of medicine do you practice? Uh, I'm just an ordinary doc. Um, Adult medicine, internal medicine. I've uh, been practicing here about 35 years, which is really hard to believe uh, since I'm still practicing. Once I get it right, I think I'll I'll quit, but I'm still practicing. (laughs) And I love my practice. I love my patients. Um, I've, I've, um, I've always wanted to be a doc and I am, and, and, uh, it's a, it's a dream come true, but you know, um, I started to run into some interesting and strange experiences over the last few years, and uh, it got me thinking about uh, wondering if other doctors have these experiences, because doctors don't talk about these kinds of things. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, doctors don't talk about very much that's deep. They talk about um, uh, patients. They talk about uh, you know the next uh, um, uh, patient that, that we had together and so forth, but uh, not about some of these uh, deep spiritual kinds of things and I was I was truly amazed when I started asking docs if they had any un- interesting experiences that they couldn't explain with the re- with the re- responses and and I they they became so amazing that I, I had to write them down mm, I'm glad you did you know I think doctors as well as anybody I mean, we have sometimes maybe little personal fear on sharing them I, I never wanted to come out saying that I was into this stuff. And once I did, so many other people said, yeah, I have similar things that have happened. So in your profession as well. Yeah, that, that happened to, to me on a number of occasions. As a matter of fact, we had one doctor that wanted to remain anonymous um, and, and not uh, you know, be uh, uh, named in the book. And after the book came out and he saw the uh, response of people to the doctors that were in the book, he said, I don't want to be anonymous anymore. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I want you to tell uh, tell people who who I am, and that I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. So, so you, um, where should we go now? Do you want to share some of the uh, experiences? I I tell you, I posted uh, this morning that I was going to be speaking with you on Facebook and I um, on your website, physiciansuntoldstories.com, You have several videos, and I 
just posted one of those and uh, several people have already purchased it. I mean, it, it is, and I, like I said, I hold the book in my hand right now, short stories, which are great and filled me with goosebumps. It's awesome. Well, that, that was one of my criteria for admission. I, I heard, I interviewed 200 doctors and I heard lots and lots of stories. 200? Well, yeah, wow. but I only included the ones that gave me goosebumps or made me tear up, not from, from sadness, but just from emotion. Mm. And uh, it's funny that when I was writing the stories, I would frequently, you know, in the middle of the night when I have my abundant leisure time, sometime between 10 and 1 a.m., uh, I'd be sitting at the, at the keyboard and te- tears would be streaming down my face because the stories were so emotional. Sure. But let, let me tell you uh, one of the stories that, uh, one of the experiences I had that got me going and, okay. and got me thinking about this whole field and, and got me thinking about talking with doctors about spirituality. And it started in Cape Cod. Have you ever been to Cape Cod? I have. Uh, we go to a little town called Eastham uh, on a semi-regular basis, and our whole family loves it. We love the uh, we love the, the ocean. We love the seafood. We love the ambiance. We love everything about Cape Cod. And, and this was a, a particularly special night. Uh, the whole family was there, we, and we have seven kids. I'm not sure again where they all came from, but we have seven kids. We all have nine grandkids, and everyone was there. It was one of those perfect evenings. Uh, if you can imagine the sun setting, the kids are playing in the yard, the girls are laughing and talking, the boys are sitting around preparing dinner. And we that you know, in and, and when we go on vacation, we commonly have the boys cook and we actually do a pretty good job, I'm surprised. And this particular evening we'd gone to uh, a local store and, and uh, had purchased some pies for dessert. And they had a big stack of pies and while we were there we got to talking about our our favorite pies. And uh, my mother uh, used to make a rhubarb pie. We had a rhubarb plant in our backyard. And every fall, she'd pick all the rhubarb uh, from the plant. It was a big plant. And she'd make rhubarb pies. And when we came to visit her, we would all sneak in, uh, sneak. I, I'm sure she knew we were sneaking. But we'd all sneak into the kitchen with spoons, all the kids and I. And we'd go at the pies without plates or anything, or dishes or anything. We'd just go and, and eat right out of the, the pan. And they were, it was the most delicious pie I've ever had I, I think bet. it's a real sweet rhubarb pie and we were thinking my, my mom had died by this point we we're thinking about uh, how she would have loved to, to, to been here you know with this with this family gathering she was a very close family person and uh, we thought it was too bad that that uh, you know she wasn't there and we thought you know if we bought the pies were there were cherry pies and we thought if she was there she she might think about making us a rhubarb pie and we you know, I got a warm feeling inside thinking about that. And it was, again, you know, one of those special evenings. You just have to pinch yourself because it was just so perfect, a perfect family occasion. And we had a nice dinner. We made uh, swordfish steaks on the grill, and we made had corn on the cob and baked potatoes, and it was really special. And then my wife served us the cherry pie for dessert, and um, I uh, put my fork in and, and put it into my mouth, and I got goosebumps uh, up and down my spine because the pie wasn't cherry. It was rhubarb. Wow. So, you know, I suppose you can explain that by saying at the at the factory or at the bakery, the they were making rhubarb pies and happened to stick one in the cherry pie mm-hmm. box or whatever. But to me, and I think to the rest of the family that was there, we, we knew that um, uh, I think that was my mom that, that was really spending the time with us. Very sweet. So that's that's one of the things that got me going. I I started thinking about, um, you know, maybe uh, uh, other people have had similar kinds of strange experiences. And 
And uh, about that time, um, one of the other doctors just happened to come to me, and we had breakfast. And his name is Steve Heim, and Steve's an orthopedic surgeon and a and a um, uh, and a trauma surgeon. And uh, we were talking about an experience he had over the weekend. He was he was skiing in Colorado, and uh, he uh, and his wife and his wife's sister uh, went up to a, a, a back mountain that they've never been on before. And uh, that blizzard hit when they hit the top of the mountain. So they had to ski down in this in this blizzard. The temperature dropped about 40 degrees, and and the snow was coming down and upside down and sideways and everything else. And they started skiing down the mountain, and they could hardly see anything in front of them. They came to a patch of trees, and they had to go to the right or the left. So uh, Steve decided to go to the right and expected the girls to follow him, my typical surgeon, I guess. Um, and uh, the girls went to the left. And so as soon as Dr. Heim discovered that, he decided to ski back through the trees to get to the other side. As he was skiing through the trees in five feet powder snow, he's an expert skier, he had this overwhelming feeling that there was something really seriously bad happening, and that he was being called on to do some something, and he didn't know what. So he stopped skiing. And he stood there for a little bit, surprised at himself that he had stopped skiing, and, and everything became quiet. Uh, despite the wind blowing and the snow coming down, it became silent. And it was an eerie feeling. And uh, he took off his skis, and then he started to, uh, for no reason, started to climb up the mountain in the opposite direction of where the girls were waiting for him. And they were waiting for him on the other side of this grove of trees. Mm-hmm. And as he's climbing and, and walking and climbing and walking, and again, everything is just this, this eerie silence. And he came to a big pine tree, and, and uh, uh, when you have a, a, a large amount of snow, the, there's a like a tree well where the where the uh, snow comes down to the base of the tree. It makes like a like a bowl underneath the tree. And when he got, when he came to a large tree about uh, 100 feet from where he'd stopped, he suddenly realized why he was there. He looked down and there was a body underneath the tree, covered with snow. Wow. Well, he's a trauma surgeon. What an ideal person to be sure, in a trauma sure. situation. So he. He did what he's trained to do, and that is brush off the snow off the fellow's head and, and uh, see if he's alive. And he didn't look like he was alive. He thought he was dead. He had a gray face. It uh, didn't look like he was breathing. But uh, again, with his training, he reached down for the carotid artery in the neck, and, uh, and the fellow had a pulse. He was alive. So he suddenly went into trauma mode. He, he brushed all the snow off, covered him with his two jackets that he had on. Uh, he put him, his head down a little bit. He started calling for help, help. One of the last skiers down the mountain heard his cry for help and came to his side. He said, what can I do? And Dr. Heim said, go to the nearest phone and call the ski patrol as soon as you can. So the skier took off, and about 20 minutes later, he could see the light from the uh, snowmobile and the pulling a gurney. And they came and picked up this unconscious, uh, shocky uh, skier, brought him down to the uh, waiting ambulance at the lodge, and took him off to the hospital. Steve then you know, made it back to... Uh, the girls, and they skied down the mountain. Uh, they got a reward when they got to the lodge. They got a cup of hot chocolate as a reward. And the next day, uh, Dr. Heim called the hospital to find out what happened to the skier. And they said he was fine. He uh, woke up. He was he uh, was alive, well. Uh, Dr. Heim had splinted his leg in the field with a tree branch and some of his clothing, and, and the orthopedic surgeons were impressed with his splinting of his leg. And uh, he, he did really well. And when Dr. Heim uh, told me this story, he said, you know, if you don't believe that there's something else out there that looks after us, that loves us, uh, you, you, I don't know what you, what you believe. And uh, that convinced him that there was really something, something else. Now, he's not a religious person. He's very spiritual, but he doesn't go to church, and he's not that religious. But uh, 
this was a moving experience for him, and I think uh, uh, probably changed changed his attitude and changed his life. Uh, so. I heard that story, and I, I thought, I've got to talk to other doctors because they must have other stories, too. Sure. And when I, when I did, um, I, was, I was amazed that the, the doctors, many of the doctors, did have some incredible stories. And uh, that's what got me started on, on the book. And, and uh, the, the next thing I thought I'd do would be to meet with, you know, doctors are like barbers. They have uh, every, every uh, known... Um, occupation uh, that you can think of uh, uh, in my practice. So I, I had a, a publisher in my practice. Mm-hmm. So I decided to sit down with my publisher and and tell him some of these stories to see if they really he really thought that they were worth publishing, because I didn't know. You know these sound these are pretty incredible stories to me. But you know how how does it play to the rest of the world sure. and to an experienced person that that is in the publishing business? So he was glad to sit down with me. We had lunch and. Um, I was telling him these stories and eating and telling him stories. I was pretty hungry at the time, and I actually didn't look up uh, for a, a few stories. I just was, you know, relating the stories and eating. And after a couple of stories, I looked up, and he had tears in his eyes. Oh. And I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe there is something to these stories. And so he said, you have to publish this. So that's, that's when I really became serious and, and uh, started to interview doctors and then uh, stay up late at night with the blurry eyes and and uh, write the write the stories, and uh, that's then then it became the book. Mm, and I think I have this feeling it's going to be the first of many because it's just tremendous, and they're and they're short stories. I mean, it um, very often there might be a guest on the show and they send me their book, and it's great. But I mean, it, you really invest time in it, and with your book, it just takes not long just to read a few pages of one story and be filled with inspiration for you know the day or whatever. I mean, it's really great. Yeah, it was it was fun to get get these stories, and you know I'm kind of a um, type A personality. I I uh, can't spend much time. Uh, maybe I'm I've got ADD or something. I can't spend much time at one thing. So it was fun to be able to you know digest one or two stories and then and then uh, move on and and uh, uh, so that and they're all different. They're all unusual. And and what was what's been interesting for me. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty busy guy. I've got a busy practice. I've got seven kids I take care of. I bet you are busy. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I don't get a chance to read much. But after the book came out, uh, I started, you know, listening to other stories and other people's books and so forth. And it was amazing to me to find that many of these stories are similar to, to the experiences other people have had. Yes, and uh, I was I was I was shocked, and and so it makes you believe that there's something else out there that uh, intervenes in our lives in similar ways in in many people. Right, and and your book, looking at it now, you have it kind of broken into four parts: divine intervention, death in the afterlife, healing, and prayer. So the stories yeah. fall into those categories. Um, would you share some from the death in the afterlife? section sure. just some that sure. come to mind because i know myself and other listeners as the title of the show is we don't die we're looking for some proof that our loved ones are still around you know they're in a great place and just anything you want to share from the stories and in your interviews one of my favorite is um about grandma hanlon um grandma hanlon uh it was a uh, uh, a grandmother of one of the doctor's wives, Joan Heitzler. And Dr. Heitzler is a gynecologist. As a matter of fact, he delivered a couple of our kids. And um, 
uh, Grandma Hanlon was born in Ireland when the uh, Irish uh, were having the battles between the Protestants and the Catholics, and uh, her uh, Grandma Hanlon's father would um, frequently put priests and other Catholics uh, in secret rooms in their house and hide them, and it was a dangerous time. So uh, Grandma Hanlon's father decided to send little Grandma Hanlon um, to the United States to, to live and grow up. And she did, and, and uh, she became a midwife, delivering babies, and um, she became the spiritual leader for the family. She would deliver babies, and if and she would stay with the, the, the mother for about six weeks to help with the, the care of the baby and let the mother recover. And um, if the mother could, if the family couldn't afford to pay her, she would take nothing. She would just do it for nothing. She um, was incredibly uh, spiritual. She would go downtown uh, to Chicago on the train. When she came across people that were begging, she would always give them money or food or something, and people used to laugh at her because they'd say, you know, if you give money to those people, they'll just use it for alcohol. And she would say back, uh, God wants me to help those people any way I can, and uh, what they do with the money is, is their thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, she uh, had a very successful career. As she got older, uh, she uh, had to uh, live with uh, Joan, uh, the my gynecologist's uh, uh, wife, and uh, she lived in their house for a, for a, a long time. She um, uh, lived there when Joan was a little girl, and she used to say, "If uh, I could," Joan used to say, "If I could make it to Grandma Hanlon's lap, if I got in trouble, I know I'd be safe." And so she had a very special, love, very loving relationship, an incredibly uh, loving relationship with her Grandma Hanlon. Well, Joan was delivering her fifth child, uh, and her husband, the gynecologist, was there. And everyone's fluttering around because they want to do a good job for the gynecologist's wife. And uh, her, uh, his partner was there doing the delivery, and they did a, did a successful delivery. But afterwards, Joan began to have some pain. So they decided to give her what was the treatment of choice in those days, trilene. It's an anesthetic that you put uh, by mask over your, over your mouth, and uh, the woman goes to sleep. So um, uh, the nurse was ready to start uh, administering trilene to, to Joan. Uh, after the delivery, and uh, all of a sudden, Grandma Hanlon comes into the room. Uh, she's dressed in her typical little uh, tiny blue polka dot dress. She has a um, sweater vest on. She has uh, her hair up in the bun. It's all white and hair up in the bun. She's wearing a little grandmother shoes, mm -hmm. and she stands at the foot of the bed, and she shakes her head. No, Joan, you, you shouldn't uh, use the trilene. So Joan saw her, pushed the, the mask away, and said, no, I'll put up with the pain. Let's just go ahead and get the you know finish finish everything you need to finish, and uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, no one realized that Joan had eaten a large meal right before the delivery, and uh, within about a minute or so of, of pushing the mask away, Joan vomited the entire meal up. Had she had the mask on and been unconscious, she would have aspirated, then she could have lost her life because of an aspiration pneumonia. It would have been very serious. So Joan uh, said that she made it to Grandma Hanlon's lap one last time, transcending time and eternity, because Grandma Hanlon had died 22 years before. Wow, 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 wow. Very special, very that's special. One my, that's one of my favorite stories. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. Even there's a, um, I, I haven't read every story so I'm mm -hmm. sorry about that. But I had read one this morning about um, a gentleman, was it he hearing music in the emergency room? And yeah, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, 
there's a uh, individual uh, Cleveland was his name. It's a I, I made up some names because I didn't want to. That's uh, okay. Yeah. But Cleveland was was uh, uh, an older gentleman, grandfather, who had a surgery, uh, and uh, the surgery was to connect an artery and a vein in his uh, arm. And um, when he went home, everything was fine. But then all of a sudden, uh, a stitch broke loose, and the uh, the blood started spurting out of his arm. And uh, before uh, he realized it, he was uh, getting weaker and weaker. His wife called the uh, paramedics. They came. He became unconscious and uh, was brought immediately to the emergency room. There, uh, it was quite a sight. Must have been quite a sight. The paramedics straddling uh, him, blood spurting out of his arm, doing CPR. The whole place was bloody, a bloody mess. And uh, uh, the uh, ER doc uh, took over and, and uh, they had to make a decision. He had no blood pressure, no pulse, um, finally, and, and uh, was, was shocky. And his hemoglobin must have been near zero. And uh, they decided that, you know, we're going to go for it. We're going to see if we can save him. And so they transfused six units of, of blood. Uh, and they were squeezing the blood in as quickly as they could. Um, and after a little bit, the uh, uh, he came to, and uh, I, I, quite a you know, maybe a number of hours, but he he, he woke up, and the first thing he said was, um, um, "I I love that that beautiful music that you play in the ER, and uh-huh. it was uh, you know the instruments and the uh, it was some unusual instruments I I've never heard that before, and the ER doc said, uh, Cleveland, we don't play music in the emergency room." So um, the uh, think, thinking is that, uh, and he went on to explain, you know, when, when he uh, heard the music, he went, was in a special room. He wanted to move back to that room that was all white, beautiful, uh, and, and gave him a, a very good, warm feeling. And so the ER doc concluded that, uh, you know, he must have been somewhere else. And uh, uh, the only thing they could think of was he must have been in heaven. Yeah. That. So great. And then uh, I'm not going to have you read tell all the stories in the book but there was one another one that touched me about a woman who um it started off uh that she was dead she was out but she actually witnessed someone walking into the room and witnessed what was happening yeah that was a good one that was one of the first stories i heard as a matter of fact let me tell you the background of that story okay i was on the floor uh making rounds and one of my uh Colleagues, Dave Mokel, who's a prominent orthopedic surgeon, came running up to me, grabbed me, and said, Scott, I've got to tell you this incredible story. I said, well, go ahead. And he said, well, I can't tell it till you hear it. And I said, well, why not? Well, someone might hear it. <laughs> so he said, let's go into an empty patient room. So we went into an empty patient room. He closed the door. And he said, you know, I, I wanted to tell you a story about this a mutual patient, that Mary, uh, that, that we had together. And um, he said, you know, uh, I was operating on Mary's ankle. We had put her to sleep, um, and we administered some some antibiotic to her. All of a sudden, she arrested, flatlined, no respirations, no pulse, eyes closed. She was basically dead. So we started CPR. And when they do CPR, when they start, uh, when they do a code in the operating room, what happens is many people from the other operating rooms going to come into the room to help out. And there was an individual that came in that had shockingly red hair underneath his uh, uh, cap. And it's a surgical cap. And so he started to do CPR on Mary. And uh, uh, Dr. Mokul, who's in charge of the code, uh, was checking for a pulse, and there was no pulse. So he wasn't doing CPR adequately enough. So he asked the fellow to step aside. He wanted to take over. Well, the ind- individual didn't step aside, and Dave 
Dr. Mokel uh, said a couple of times, you know, step aside, I'd like to take over. And so finally, when he did, didn't step aside, you know, codes are life and death situations. If you're in charge, you have to make sure that you're doing all the right things to make sure that person has the best care possible. So he actually moved up and pushed the fellow aside and, and started to do CPR. And this individual with the red hair stumbled away and, and uh, Dr. Mokel took over. And by that point, uh, he was able to get a, a good uh, uh, perfusion. They gave her, gave her some medications and, and she came around again, was not conscious, but her heart started and, and she, she came too. And so she was moved to the intensive care unit where she woke up the next day. Now, when she was leaving the hospital three or four days later, they, they found that what had happened to her was that she arrested from the, from the antibiotic that was given, and she was otherwise fine. And when Dr. Mocha was giving her the final instructions to, to leave, she said, thank you for saving my life. And Dr. Mocha's a pretty humble individual. He said, well, thank you. It was a team effort, you know. And then <laughs> she said, no, no, no. I saw you. Uh, you saved my life. And um, she said, I saw the, the person with the red hair doing CPR. And then I saw you push him away. And by this point, Dr. Mokel got a little weak kneed and had to sit down sure. uh, because, you know, he, he's trying to figure out some scientific explanation for what she's saying. And she went on to tell him all the great details of what happened during the code that he had paged me. Uh, I wasn't in the hospital, but he kept looking at the door to see if I was coming and uh, a whole host of little tiny uh, minutia that you wouldn't expect a person to know unless they were actually there. And Dr. Mokel said, well, what, what happened? And she said, when, when I coded, when I, when I arrested, I went up to the top of the room and I had this out-of-body experience that I was witnessing the entire, entire code. And at the time, my grandmother came to me and she said, uh, my grandmother who had died a number of years before, and she said it wasn't my time to go, that I would, have to, I would come back, but that I needed to be a kind and gentle person. And if, if I was, then there would be a special place for her in heaven. Now, Mary uh, was kind of a curmudgeon. She was uh, before this arrest. She was a, not a nice person in many cases. She was okay. But afterwards, she was the kindest and nicest person for the rest of her life. She didn't live that long because she had a number of other medical problems. She lived probably two or three more years. But during that time, she was kind and gentle to her widowed father. She was uh, Every time I saw her in the office, it was a joy to see her. And she made a total transformation. And... Uh, uh, Dr. Mokel, uh, you know, couldn't explain uh, this scientifically, and and he said, I said to him, you know, who did you tell this to, Dave? And and he said, no one. Uh, they'd think I was crazy. Right. But I, but I needed to tell you. I needed to tell someone. So I thought, I thought I'd tell you. He finally agreed to have the story in the book, but that was an amazing story and an amazing turnaround. It reminded me of the Christmas Carol, where uh, Scrooge, you know, made an amazing turnaround just like uh, Mary did. And so I called it the Christmas Mary's Christmas Carol in the book. Sure, it's an amazing I've, story. I've spoken to many people that have had near-death experiences, and, and the turnaround is tremendous. And a lot of people do a lot of good for other people um, after, and it's they're really inspiring. And it's just a little. This isn't really a commercial break, but to you, our listener who's listening right now, I think you've come to this show on so many occasions to hear these stories, to hear from a guest and get some good evidence that life goes on. And I have to tell you personally that this is a, a really beautiful book because 27 physicians coming together with these stories and they all give goosebumps. I mean, just there's no way to not be comforted while reading it, to not be inspired, to not have hope and faith that there's a bigger picture. I mean, um, 
Dr. Scott, thank you for, it's not the end of the interview, but thank you so much for having the courage to ask these questions and compile all these stories. Well, it was my hope, uh, Sandy, that, that uh, people would uh, receive some hope from these stories. You know, when you write a book, you never quite know the whole, uh, you know, the, the, when, you, when you put all the stories together, uh, a book takes on a life of its own. And I think one of the take-home lessons that I tried to, to achieve, and I think we have, is that there's something else out there. There's, there's, a, there's a force. There's Most of the doctors, myself, call it God, but you can call it what you want, uh, that loves us unconditionally, that participates in our lives, and that people that have gone before can participate in our lives also. They can, they can help us in positive ways. And uh, some of the doctors actually count on uh, uh, these miracles to help them with their with their practice. Mm, so and, great. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a woman who wrote to me about a month ago and grieving the loss of her husband. And she was looking for answers. And she says, how come we haven't heard from any physicians that have these stories, you know, of life after death? And that was just after you had emailed me. And I thought, you just wait, because I'm going to bring you a show that they're out there. You know, it's yeah. just that maybe they're not talking about it because, yeah, like you said, who can you tell these stories to? I I. That, that's true. And, and, you know, when I first started talking to doctors, I wasn't sure that they would allow me to publish these amazing stories. Right. They, again, they don't tell these stories to, to anyone uh, or very, very few people. And so I, I thought to myself, you know, why would, why would these doctors uh, allow me to take their amazing stories that they don't tell anyone for fear of being criticized? And, and publish them. And I, I, I came up with a couple explanations. And, and uh, one is, you know, I think they, I've been around for a long time. Uh, I, I know all of these doctors, and some of them I've known for 30 and 40 years. And so I think they trust me to, to, to tell us their story in a, in a uh, uh, truthful way and, and, and not uh, skew it in any way. The real reason, though, I think that the doctors allowed me to publish these stories is one of the things I, I, I mentioned in the book, and that is many doctors, and, and, and I can say that for personally all the doctors in this book, are what I call sappy do-gooders. Such a great term. <laughs> it's a great term. Uh, sappy do-gooders. Sappy do-gooders. And, you know, uh, when you go to medical school, when you start uh, apply to medical school, you have to write up an article about uh, why you want to be a doctor. And, and everyone writes, I want to save the world and cure cancer and all these kinds of things. And you know, uh, the doctors that I talk with, and, and most doctors, still have the same uh, aspirations to, to save the world, to do good in the world, and I and every day, and help someone every, every day. And and uh, when, I, when I collected these stories, uh, I think the doctors had an overwhelming uh, desire to let people know that there's something else out there, to give them some hope. And I think that desire of being a sappy do-gooder was, was, was greater than the risk that they took. And it's a substantial risk that people would criticize them for having these unusual stories of dreams and premonitions and visions and things like that, that you don't talk about, that you don't expect an ordinary routine doctor to have, but they do. So I think it was their desire to help people uh, be comforted. It's a tough life. There's th bad things that happen in this life. And I, I think if people know that there's something else out there, that doctors know that there's something else out there that looks out for them, that loves them unconditionally, they'll be able to face the, the problems in their life a lot easier and have hope. And, and that's what I was hoping to, to get from this book, to give people hope that there is something else. 
Mm. I'd like to see you talking about the book on Fox and Friends, Good Morning America, and because there could really be the ripple effect that people actually go ask their own physician, hey, have you seen this book? Have you had any of these stories? And, and to make it be more common that, oh, well, this, these guys are guys and gals are sharing their story. Certainly, maybe I'll be able to also. So it's yeah, that was that was my other hope that that, that this would open up a conversation with patients and doctors because you know. Uh, healing takes place not just with drugs and medicine. Healing takes place with hands-on, with love, and um, uh, sometimes uh, in strange ways that we can't explain. And uh, I think if people have uh, hope and if they have uh, uh, they have positive attitude, that makes a huge difference for all kinds of illnesses, including cancers and all the bad things that that people can get. Yeah. So. Would you share from your third part maybe a story about healing? Uh, sure. Uh, there's uh, there's a particularly good one. Um, there's a lady. This is uh, uh, a lady in in uh, Wheaton. Uh, that uh, uh, Barbara's her name, and uh, Barbara uh, gave me permission to mention her name and and to tell the story. And it's interesting that um, I'll tell you a little bit about the background of this. Uh, I I had her story from her doctor, and uh, I just needed to get her permission to publish it and get her ideas on on some of the details. And I had written her a letter where I thought she was because it was hard. This happened about 20 years ago or, or, or more, and so it was hard to find her. And uh, I I really couldn't locate her in, in the country. And I had all kinds of search services and so forth that I, that I purchased to find people that that uh, needed to give their permission. And so I had to turn the manuscript into the publisher, and uh, I had to take her story out because I couldn't I couldn't contact her. Well, all of a sudden. Uh, several days before I had to turn the manuscript in, I get a phone call. And who is it? It's Barbara. She said, I thought I, I had a feeling I needed to call you. I got your letter, you know, uh, six months ago. Wow. And I've been sitting on it. And uh, I just thought I'd, I'd call you today. And it gave me goosebumps when I got the phone call because I could therefore include her story in, in the book. And uh, she was delighted to, to have it. And, and, and you know, why she called me at that time uh, you can only guess. Uh, um, I, I I know the reason, but uh, uh, it was very interesting that that was a, a coincidental uh, finding that probably wasn't a coincidence at all. Right. Anyway, her story is that she had multiple sclerosis, and uh, she had uh, gotten progressively more uh, disabled with multiple sclerosis. Uh, she was uh, uh, having trouble seeing, affected her vision. She had a tracheostomy uh, in place uh, so she could oxygen uh, right directly into her lungs. Uh, she had, was having, having, having trouble breathing. She had a uh, collapsed lung and a paralyzed diaphragm. Uh, she uh, had wore braces on her legs because she couldn't uh, uh, move very well, and, and by this point she couldn't walk. She was getting recurrent infections in her lungs because uh, she couldn't uh, take deep breaths and couldn't ventilate. And so uh, Dr. Marshall, who was the doctor take, taking care of her at the time, decided that it was time to think about hospice. And hospice is a program where you, um, uh, are, uh, you, you the doctor certifies that you have less than six months to live. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, loving program. And so she was entered into the hospice. Her pastor saw her. Pastor Bailey saw her for what he thought was the last time, uh, said a prayer with her, and didn't expect her to, to live longer than a week or two. And uh, at the time, uh, there was a uh, radio show that uh, told stories about people that needed, uh, were, was requesting, were requesting prayers. So uh, this radio show aired, uh, and uh, there were thousands and thousands of people that, that said prayers, and they sent letters, too. 
and uh, when when um, uh, Barbara was was uh, you know lying in, in bed and 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 pretty much near the end, uh, the aunt her aunt brought in a, a, a bag of letters uh, from these people that had said prayers for her. And it was a huge bag. She had trouble carrying it. And, and at the same time, there were a couple of people visiting from church. And Barbara, all of a sudden, uh, heard something that no one else heard. And the words were something like, uh, my, my daughter, uh, uh, get up and walk. And she, uh, it was, a, it was a, a strange command. And she immediately moved over to the edge of the bed, stood up, took her braces off, took her oxygen off, and she started to walk. In fact, she walked into the uh, living room where her parents were totally surprised and, and uh, amazed. The physical therapist that was there couldn't believe it. She kept saying, you can't, you can't do this, you can't do this. And she started to dance. She did a ballet for, the, wow. for the, her parents. They uh, hugged her. Everyone had tears in their eyes, and they couldn't believe that, that she was totally cured. The next night... Uh, was the um, uh, church service, uh, the routine church service that they have at night for her church. And uh, she had no clothes to wear because she had been ill for so long that they had gotten rid of all of her clothes and she just had pajamas and things like that. So she was late for the church service because she had to find some address to wear from the right. neighbor. So uh, the, old, the church service was going on. The pastor, Pastor Bailey, was at the front of the, the church and he was uh, giving some announcements. And in walks Barbara and uh, strolls down the center aisle, and, and there were whispers all over the church, there's Barbara, there's Barbara. I thought she was going to die. I oh, thought she was yeah. you know, uh, uh, sick. Pastor Bailey lost his voice. He couldn't say anything. He was so shocked. And spontaneously, everyone in the congregation started to sing Amazing Grace. Can you imagine Wow! walking down the center aisle, Amazing Grace being sung spontaneously by the, by the, the parishioners, and then she walked to the front of the, the church. Uh, Pastor Bailey finally was able to get his <laughs> voice back. And he said, Barbara, tell, tell us your story. This is amazing. And so she was totally cured. The next day, she went to her doctor, Dr. Marshall. They took out her tubes. And um, she uh, was, was totally cured from, from her illness. Uh, she's lived another 25 or so years. She now is married to a pastor. And her goal in life is to do good and, and to help people, like she's been helped. And she's thriving and doing very well uh, right now. That's an amazing story of, of healing and uh, uh, the power of, of uh, prayer. Yeah, miracles are possible. They sure are. And healing and, um, wow, that's great. I, the last uh, story that I had read before I called you was by, about a fellow named Bob who was in a coma. That's a good one. sharing that one? Because I think there's sure. many of us, like I... I my dad wasn't in a coma. I don't, but he, the last days of his life, he had a lot of medication pumped into him, and so he was not responsive. He uh, and and I kept talking to them, and I I know there's lots of people that have struggled with that and loved ones in coma. But if you could sh- share that, because that's Andy, wild. Let me ask you a question. Sure. Why did you keep talking to him when he was in a coma? Um, there was just a part of me that knew that he was still listening, that he was still there. It was just instinctive. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's what this story is about. This is a story about two doctors that were friends. And the one thing, what, what they had in common was fishing. They both love fishing. Um, John Messett uh, is uh, uh, my gynecologic friend who's now retired. 
and um, Bob Cornell, his friend, uh, they used to meet in the morning in the doctor's lounge. And the doctor's lounge has lots of wonderful things like coffee and donuts and great things to eat that are very healthy like that. Mm-hmm. So they used to meet in the morning and they'd tell fishing stories. And then they'd tell stories about their families and other things. But they love to talk about fishing. And so every morning uh, before rounds, they would get together and they'd share fishing stories. But one day, Bob Cornell didn't show up. He was uh, admitted to the hospital with a massive stroke. And he was in a deep coma. Uh, the intensivist in the uh, ICU felt that uh, he was basically um, brain dead and would not come around. And they decided to watch him for a couple days, maybe three days. And then he told uh, my friend, Dr. Messett, who was uh, there, that if he didn't come around, they would uh, pull the tubes and, and let, him, let him die. So uh, Dr. Messett was very uh, upset and very concerned and, and wanted to do something. And he didn't know what he could do. He was, you know, being taken care of intensively. But he had that feeling, just like you, Sandy, that he needed to uh, talk to him. So he looked around to make sure no one else was in the little cubicle uh, that was in the intensive care unit. And he moved his chair close up up to Bob's face. And Bob was in a deep coma. He couldn't. Res- he didn't respond to anything. And uh, John, uh, Dr. Messett started to tell him stories. He t- he t- the stories he told were, were his fishing stories, and he's, uh, he told him a story that he'd never told before about fishing in the um, Mackenzie River in, in Canada. And they flew in, and, and uh, it was an amazing experience because the, 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 the river was full of fish, uh, graylings they're called, and um, they could throw pretty much anything into the water, and a grayling would bite on it. And, and uh, Dr. Messett said at the end of the day he had sore arms from reeling in so many graylings. It was a catch-and-release uh, uh, proposition. And uh, he thought that was a, a great story. And every day he'd tell him a little piece of that story and, and additional stories. And the third day when Bob was going to die, uh, uh, Dr. Messett went into the uh, ICU with a heavy heart and uh, uh, was sad that that was the day that they were going to take the tubes out and, and that uh, Bob would, would die. Mm-hmm. And when he walked into the room, when he walked into the ICU, he saw his room was empty. Uh, the light was off. The bed was stripped. And he thought he must have died the night before, and he was, you know, he was sad that he had missed him, that he that he didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him uh, the last day. So he talked to the nurse, and he said, you know, when when did Bob die? And she laughed, <laughs> and, and that upset Dr. Messett, obviously. Of course. Uh, until she said, until he he realized why she was laughing, and she, she said, well, he woke up yesterday. He went, to, you know, he was so good, he went down to the uh, step down unit. And uh, he's he's going to be fine, and uh, so Dr. Messett was was thrilled. He finally caught up with him. Uh, he had, was transferred to a, a rehabilitation hospital. Finally caught up to him in the doctor's lounge again a few weeks later, uh, where um, uh, Bob Cornell uh, said uh, in a, he had a, a stroke, so he had some stuttering speech and he couldn't speak really well. And he said, "John, thank thank you. You were the only person who talked with me." And I loved your stories. I loved the story about the Grayling and Mackenzie River. That was one you never told me before. And I look forward to having you come every day and tell me those stories. And John Messett, the the doctor that told him the stories, uh, thought to himself, you know, you, you wonder if there's a time when people have a choice of leaving the earth or staying. If they cross that bridge or cross that river or whatever, uh, if that's their decision. And he wondered if his stories had any influence on whether Bob stayed or, or left. We'll never know. 
but we do know that Bob Cornell was in a deep coma and, and heard those stories clearly, and those gave him joy and hope and may have saved his life. I love that story. Oh, I do too. I'm sitting here in my room talking to you right now, and I just have tears in my eyes. You know, uh, there's always somebody who posts on Facebook, you know, what's the best book you've ever read, read or what books made a real difference in your life? And it's it's yours. <laughs> it's Physicians <laughs> Untold Stories. And I, I know you know the stories uh, like the back of your hand, but just for anybody listening right now, um, this is one of those books. And if you... If you know somebody who's in the media or know somebody that might have access to a large number of people to share it with, I mean, it, it, it is something that I would encourage you to have a little courage and share. I mean, it's just awesome. Um, it really is. And I'm proud to be able to talk to you about it now. And yeah, just really wonderful. And it, all the stories are like this. It's just great. What? Like I said, I only included the ones that either gave me goosebumps or made me cry. And yeah. uh, the other, there, there are lots of other stories. And uh, since I've written the book, I've had lots of other people come up to me and, and say, you know, I've got, I've got a story like that, too. And so I think the next book is going to be Nurses, Nurses Untold Stories, because they have some amazing stories also. And I've heard some from the nurses that uh, have, have looked at my book. And, you know, people are feeling freer about coming out with these stories now that they've that that they're in a book and so i'm getting stories that people haven't told to anyone and uh it's fun it's fun it's fun to get those stories and it's Mm, fun to do definitely and definitely talk to some hospice nurses because some of their stories are just tremendous yes really tremendous what what they experience um what should i ask you that i haven't asked you um what do you want to talk about Okay. Um, the, the other thing, I, 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 uh, part of the book uh, that that uh, I enjoyed writing was, you know, uh, doctors don't talk to each other in in spiritual ways, and and, and and you know, we don't talk about what makes you tick and and why you went into medicine and things like that. We talk about uh, patients and surgeries and uh, you know, what what are you going on? Where are you going on vacation? Things like that. But I, when you when you get into some of these deep stories, you also find out what makes doctors tick and, and, and why they do what they do. And uh, I included that section in the book, too. It's, uh, it's on, on what, what I learned about doctors that people don't tend to know. And uh, let me just tell you a few of those uh, simple stories. One is uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Andy Rao, who's a cardiologist in Elmhurst Hospital here in the Chicagoland area. And, I, and Andy and I were talking about the weather and about uh, you know just the things of life, uh, patients and so forth. And I happened to mention to him that I had a um, – uh, I, we were doing some adoption work at the time, and, and we found out about this little girl in Romania that was up for adoption but would never be adoptable because she had burned her feet. What happened was in the orphanage, it was cold at night, and she was sitting next to a space heater with her plastic shoes on. And the plastic shoes that got too close to the space heater while she was asleep, they melted on her feet and caused tremendous burns and, and deformity of her feet, and she couldn't walk, and she may never be able to walk. And uh, unless she had multiple operations, and I said, you know, to Andy uh, at the time, you know, it's, it's just too bad uh, that uh, you know, no one's going to be able to adopt her. And about a week later, I got a call, uh, and it was Andy, Andy Rell, and he said, we'd like to take her. Oh. I said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, we'd like to adopt her, that little girl you talked about. And I said, Andy, you don't know anything about her. She could have all kinds of medical problems that you don't realize. Are you sure? And he said, Yeah. 
we have enough means, uh, we have insurance, and uh, we have a great family, and we'd like to bring her uh, into our, our family, make her part of our lives, and we think we can help her to become uh, what, what may be a normal person. And I said, are you sure? And he said, absolutely. Oh. Unfortunately, uh, the girl had been uh, asked, had been uh, spoken for uh, just a couple days before by some other family that adopted her, so Dr. Rao didn't end up adopting her. But that's the kind of thing that um, initially surprised me when in talking with doctors. But but uh, that uh, that's more common than I realized. That doctors are a bunch of sappy do-gooders in in many cases, and and that was was not an unusual thing. That would happen, I think, from from many doctors that would that would offer to do that. So that was uh, uh, kind of a uh, eye opener to me. But but uh, and I put that in the book as as what I learned about doctors. Wow, that's special. Uh, I've got another one. Uh, sure. Dr. Jorgensen is a, a general surgeon, uh, an outstanding general surgeon who developed an allergy to the plastics in the uh, operating room. And he couldn't, every time he'd go in the operating room, he'd break out in a rash or develop some wheezing. So he couldn't operate anymore. So uh, he uh, uh, was looking for something to do. He took up painting for a while. That wasn't fulfilling to him. So he decided to become a county coroner. He's presently the county coroner of DuPage County, and a great coroner. And what he found was uh, heroin is a big problem uh, today, especially in, in the suburban uh, Chicagoland area. And one July, there were 16 deaths of young people from heroin overdoses. And he, and he has to certify all the deaths in DuPage County. That's what the coroner does. And so he thought, I've got to do something about this. And uh, you know, you know, coroners aren't supposed to be out there saving lives. They're they sort of they're certifying deaths and so forth. Right. So he decided to get some money from uh, the group of doctors. Uh, we uh, have a fund at the hospital that the, uh, that the doctors contribute to, and we contributed ten thousand dollars to this this uh, project of his. He decided to equip all the paramedics, the firefighters, the uh, policemen with Narcan, which, uh, syringe of Narcan, which is an antidote to uh, heroin. So if you have a heroin overdose and you rush into the, the room and the person's unconscious, you give them a shot of Narcan, they wake up immediately if it's not been too long. And so uh, that program has been going on for about two to three years, and he has saved literally a hundred lives in our county, our small county alone oh, uh, with this program. So talk about do-gooders, sappy do-gooders. Here's a guy who's a coroner who's not supposed to be treating patients or saving lives, who's responsible for over 100 uh, young people uh, being saved. And can you imagine the tragedy when a, when a young person dies in a family? And imagine those 100 families that have been saved that awful lifelong, lifelong tragedy uh, because of this sappy do-gooder coroner who's equipped people with Narcan. So... Uh, and there's a number of other stories uh, on, the, on the doctor. So that's also part of the book, uh, which doesn't get as much attention. But I, uh, it really moved me to learn about what these doctors do uh, in their abundant leisure time and, and on the side. Mm. It just goes to show no matter what we do for a profess- profession, we can be a sappy do-gooder and make right. a difference somewhere Right. for someone. And right. many wise folks have said that one of the biggest things we can do in life is serve others and um being a sappy good do-gooder <laughs> in our, each of our different ways is is the way to go may we uh, all be card-carrying sappy do-gooders yes yes <laughs> are you looking for people's stories yes i am yes i am um 
and I'm hoping to write other books. Uh, you know, this kind of thing lends itself to to a whole host of books: uh, mm-hmm. untold stories of nurses, on un, un, number two, untold stories about doctors, pastors. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and so yes, I am. And um, you can go onto our website, physiciansuntoldstories.com, and there's a link there. You can just uh, say, "I've got a story." We're happy to call you up, or or talk with you on the phone, or whatever. Uh, and get your story, or you can write your story there and, and send it to us. So, Do you yeah, have we're, to be a doctor or nurse to participate, or anybody's no, can anyone. take anybody's we're stories? for any stories, because I think uh, eventually we may have, uh, if we get enough stories, we'll publish uh, some other additional books on uh, stories from, from anyone. Uh, and I, I think the, the goal is to give people hope and to help them realize there's something else out there that loves us and uh, and that everyone has these experiences. If you just pay attention and believe, you can realize that some of the strange coincidences that you may have had may not be coincidental at all. And that's what the goal is, uh, to help people realize that and to get some hope in this world. Pay attention and believe. Awesome. Closing words. <laughs> really great. Well, Dr. Scott Kolbaba, thank you from the bottom of my heart for being our guest today. Thanks, Sandy. It's been a pleasure. It really has been. And for our listener, thanks for being here this past hour. And remember to visit physiciansuntoldstories.com. And, of course, you can always go to wedontdieradio.com and click on episode 136. And if you are somebody who's experiencing some grief right now uh, from a loss, as much as we know or want to know that our loved ones are still around, grieving is a very tough thing. And at wedontdieradio.com. If you click on Join the Insiders Club, I have a free 70-minute audio that uh, gives some understanding to the grief and how to move through it and some tools to help you feel better. So that's a free gift from me to you. So uh, in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain, and I've been delighted to be your host on We Don't Die Radio. And I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on Earth is important. So remember what Dr. Scott says, pay attention and believe. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.